listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. And with me today is Kalman Andrasovsky. You probably know him if you're reading Captain Canuck. Because he's the man behind it all. He's done some art for it. He's the writer on it. He's also done some covers and interior work for the big two, Marvel and DC. And uh, he's somebody that uh, I can call a friend. Welcome, Kalman. Thanks, man. How's it going? It's going well. I'm, I'm glad you could uh, take some time at your busy schedule to, uh, to join me for a conversation this evening. I'm glad too. We tried for a while to nail it down and now we're actually here. Barely yeah. feels real. And and you're an actual fan of this podcast, so it's I it's have listened to, have to the episodes as to, a listener, yeah, yes. Sure, cool. All right, and well, usually the way that I start is I like to get a feel for uh your early life and how you fell in love with comics. So, I'm going to start with uh, the simple question of where did you grow up? Born and raised in Toronto. I know that's relatively rare. Toronto is kind of the New York City of Canada and that everyone here is from somewhere else, but I was born here. Child of divorce, my parents split up when I was pretty young. So as a result, I had a weekend dad who was eager to please and was kind of at a loss of what to do with me. That's, so That's the same story I have. It's probably pretty gloves. common. I suspect yeah. a lot of a lot of us stunted nerds are the results of broken homes. And so uh, I guess he just kind of took me into a variety store and said, you know, there are some comics here. We can, you know, we can come and do this every weekend. You know, why don't you pick a few that you like? And I did. And I picked X-Men, Micronauts and Wonder Woman. And uh, we took him home and he read them to me. I couldn't read yet. It was a pre-reading age. I was probably like oh, five. Cool. And I could not understand why the story didn't like complete. I was completely like broken headed about the fact that, wait, where's the rest? And he's like, we have to go month and a month and get the next one. And I was like, what? That's ridiculous. No, I want it now. But I was also hooked. Um, and so since those were the three that I picked, those are the three we kept buying. Um, I chose them. Well, Wonder Woman, I think probably I was watching reruns of the TV show at the time. But uh, X-Men and Micronauts, I, okay, I know why I chose Micronauts too, because I loved the toys. I'm a little too young to have really bought them off the shelf, but I was obsessed enough with them that my dad would kind of hunt them down from like garage sales and uh, warehouses and stuff. And then I chose X-Men because I didn't recognize a single character on the cover. And uh, that was exciting. As a five-year-old, I was already over Spider-Man and Superman. I wanted weirdos. I wanted people I didn't know. And so I picked the X-Men. And was Bill Mantlo writing Micronauts at the time? He must have been. It was after the the Michael Golden run. I think it was Jackson Geis by then when I started. Biotron was already dead, if that if that puts it in context. Yeah. I haven't gone back to that series, so my, my references are really fuzzy on that. And I think they're like relaunching them, aren't they? Like the Micronauts? And IDW, I think. Or the other one, Boom. One of them yeah, got IDW. the rights to ROM and Micronauts yeah, yeah, to do yeah. new stuff. Yeah. Cool. Which is something that certain a certain stratum of fan has been clamoring for for a long time, and Marvel's just been like, screw that, it's too much money. Although you'll remember that Devils do relaunch Micronauts in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And it was not a massive success that everyone expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So hopefully this one uh, becomes one of those. So when did you go to your first comic shop? Uh, shortly thereafter, it must have been a year or two. My dad uh, was a draftsman, and he worked with another guy at his at his place of work who was a comics fan. And he's like, first, he's like, I have this buddy. He's a 
big comic book collector. And so instead of going to the variety store and hunting through, like, I'll just get him to pick us up the books you like every month. He goes to this place called Silver Snail. It's a, co- it's a store that only has comic books. And so that happened for a while. And then I was like, why aren't we going there? And so he took me to Silver Snail. This was two locations ago before it was at the, uh, the Queen West location that most people know. It was kind of closer to the university. And, uh, did it have a mural back then? Uh, it may have done. I just remember a cabinet of giant robots that just also broke my brain. Um, and I, I was like, yeah, screw the comics. I just want to sit here and stare at the robots. Um, and so that was Silver Snail. Probably it had only been open for about five years by then. Um, was very, very early pivotal sort of uh, pillar in my comic book uh, life. Once you were like, when did you become like sort of formative age? And this is like a serious thing that you're collecting and you're, you're into like the nerddom at all. Cause I, when I was a kid, it was just, you go, you go for a bit, you don't really understand what's happening, but you're reading them. And then eventually it becomes like a serious, like bag and board sort of situation. I was never good at that part of it. I'm not a very organized or tidy person. And so like I'd have stacks of comics that would just spill and I'd like walk on them and stuff. And I never did any of that. But I definitely the one I mean, I kept up with X-Men. That was the book that I pretty much consistently collected as my tastes sort of changed throughout my life. All through elementary school, I was a big comic book reader in grade five. I remember I met another kid in my class who was also the best at drawing in his sort of classes, and we were sort of drawing frenemies. Um, that sort of got me back into comics in a more intense way because it was laced with a certain competitive edge. Um, but then in grade six, I had this weird flip where I just gave up on comics and just cared about Star Wars. And and then it wasn't until a few years later, I guess, junior high with like playing role playing games, I started getting back into comics. But then it was more like indie stuff, like the black and white Ninja Turtles book and Vertigo was sort of pre Vertigo time wasn't Vertigo yet. But it was that stuff like early Sandman, Shade the Changing Man. I got into Cerebus and Love and Rockets. And uh, I decided the superheroes were crap. And I was much more into stuff like Akira. And then, you know, you get over yourself in a few years. And and then it was all just comics. and, And my tastes have always been really broad. I've loved India. I've loved mainstream. You know, there's garbage and awesome in all of it. But I, I, I don't know that I'm trying to think. I don't think my, my reading really lagged through high school like most people's did. What happened, though, I, was, I got distracted by uh, anime for, for a few years there, where that was the biggest influence on my drawing. And I guess I need to say, like, being a kid who drew, all of my comics buying sort of fed into that. I think maybe I was more consistent with my comic book obsession than the average person who just read comics, because from an early age, they were fuel. They were like... Drawing was the obsessive thing that I did all the time, and so I always needed more comics to make me draw more. So when you're simultaneously into drawing, when did that start? Did that happen because of the comics, or was that like a separate thing and the comics happened to sort of be a good marriage to that? I don't know. I think um, drawing was something I always did, and it was something I was always told I was good at. Um, I think I can't separate those two things though because there were always comics around and i was always drawing and even if before comics i was drawing the superheroes on tv i was making up my own i was drawing the the japanese robots i was making up my own you know i was drawing so then i told you there's a star wars phase that wasn't just like watching star wars that was me drawing star wars characters making up my own uh then i got into like fairies and like uh, medieval stuff and like reignited my D interest and then i was doing that and making up my own so it was always it was always something i remember i used to draw 
stick figures in the back of my comics and like in the panels because I felt like there I I needed to contribute to the story and there weren't enough like characters. I had Elf Quest number one and I colored in all their hair, but I colored in all their hair like blue and purple because I was also buying Robotech comics at the time and I was like, that's allowed. And uh, yeah, that comic might be worth hundreds of dollars now if I hadn't done that. Yeah, for sure. When did you like get into drawing as a as a thing that you thought maybe you could make money at doing and that this would be something that you could do as a career? Um, in the middle of high school, I changed schools to go to an art school. So I think that was like a sign of me being pretty serious about it and wanting it, realizing that that was my thing. And that was your own choice. So you're like, <clears throat> I want to go to art school. Yeah, and all of these like advanced sort of, um, you know, the school I went to was had a really good arts program but a really awful academics program. And I was like, yeah, screw that. Don't need it. I'm going to make a good portfolio and that's going to be what I do. So that was already like, I don't know, I must have been 15, 16 at the time. What was the school called? Central Tech. Central Tech. They have an amazing arts program. They have a separate building for it that's three floors, just full of art classes. And they even have a secret post-secondary program, which used to be free. Um, if you can get in, but now it's just like $300 a year. It's a weird urban Toronto, like secret. It's like, you know, a secret item at Burger's Priest on the menu. Um, so we had university students mixing with us in the halls in the art building. And as, as art students in the art building, we didn't really mix with the main building. It was its own weird little school for gifted youngsters, like off to the side. (laughs) School for gifted youngsters. I like that. Yeah. Um, was it like art school confidential? Like maybe that whole <laughs> That's, I, you know, I haven't read that in so long. Yeah. I never saw the movie. So sure. I mean, there was life drawing and all that stuff. It was, it was like, I, I actually, my schooling happened at the worst possible time for any sort of arts or media education, because it was just before computers were everywhere, but just after the old ways of doing things were over. So I kind of fell into an unfortunate gap. Um, I went to that school because I really wanted to go to OCAD and, uh, I wanted to absolutely like uh you know uh, stack the deck in my favor and uh, and i did i got into ocad but i was so disappointed (laughs) by the way the classes were taught there in comparison to the high school i had just come from that i i dropped out after my first year because it felt so weird to say but it felt so behind like the classes in my in the art high school were outstanding and free and I was busting my ass working to pay for OCAD and I was doing essentially what was a review. What you'd already been Now doing. maybe if I would powered through for a year or two, I might have gotten to the good stuff. But again, it was a terrible time to be going to art school because again, like it was just a couple of years lagging behind the rest of the world. I actually got a much better education by dropping out, joining a comic studio and also freelancing for a desktop publishing company across town. And I'd been doing... um clip art, pen and ink clip art drawings of animals for these guys all through high school is like a side job. And, uh, and they took me in as a, as a permanent employee once I was, uh, going to college. And I was like, I'm learning Photoshop and doing graphics. And, you know, the, the art school is still making me copy out Letraset books by hand and cut Rubylith. So, yeah. so I just went for it after that. Cool. So, this desktop publishing company, like what what kind of desktop publishing did they do? Were they well, just... it was the early nineties. They so were doing like they were doing CD ROMs. Oh, okay. They were doing CD ROMs and uh, clip art packages. They were producing these uh, boxes of clip art. They're essentially like this is like the very early stages of the internet. Yeah, this is like where you had an email 95. address, like eighty nine, ninety one. Well, no, this more. would have been this would have been ninety three, ninety four. Okay. Yeah, so it was like passport.ca and all that, like 
uh, dial up. Yeah. Um, AOL. So you, you they they produce these clip art packages that were essentially like a cardboard box with art on it, shrink wrapped. You'd buy it, you'd open it up, and there'd be a bunch of three and a half inch discs in there, and you'd pop them in one by one and look at the clip art you could use. Cool, and like customize your computer and stuff like i remember in school they used to give the kids with disabilities they used to give them like mac desktop computers cool one of the ways that they would entice you is they would have like themes that you could put on your desktop and they were basically just art that you could like change like the icon of your yeah these weren't even like custom icons these were like black and white graphics to like if you were making a bar mitzvah flyer you could put like a soaring eagle on top (laughs) and print it out on your (laughs) printer that's awesome that's old school i'm old yeah so as you're doing that you're also you joined did you join raid at that time or what studio raid did did not exist uh it was a studio that started um in a comic store called alternate gravity it was sort of a a competition for queen uh for the real estate on queen street with the silver snail it was sort of during the late 80s early 90s as you know there was a massive speculator boom in comics Mm -hmm. and there was an appropriate uh boom in comic stores opening so you had you had dragon lady and silver snail on queen street but then suddenly you had gray region and third quadrant and 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 alternate gravity and alternate gravity had an upstairs space that they turned into like a workspace for artists and they were basically renting out hot desks i don't know if that concept existed then but they're basically hot desks you pay like a monthly fee and you could come and sit at a desk and work with people and a lot of uh toronto comic book royalty started out in that studio is that where like mr x came from no and, like, this is that would be vortex that okay. was an actual publisher okay i tried to get a co-op at vortex because uh, a friend of mine that I know uh, had gotten one, and uh, they had just gone out of business. Oh. So I think Vortex, I think, ended in the late 80s. I just missed it. Oh. No, this was just a studio. Like, it had okay. no publishing presence. It just was just a shared space. It was run by a guy named Logan Lubera, who had worked down at Extreme Studios, and he had kind of come back with a ton of comic boom money, and he kind of wanted to do something here. And so he opened this studio, and... Uh, that studio existed and went through many changes over the years, and it turned into Frozen Ink, and then it turned into Bright Anvil, and then it turned into something else. That's I, I jumped off around the Bright Anvil time, but uh, I mean, let's see. Let me let me give you some names: Steve McNiven, Francis Manipal, Arthur De La Cruz, uh, Eric Vetter, Joe Vreens, Valentine Delandro, uh, Adrian Alfona. All these guys did some time there. Some with me, uh, Jay Torres. Uh, I could dig up some more. Uh, some, some at the same time as me, uh, and some after me. But it was it was kind of a beacon. It was a lightning rod at a time when, uh, again, it was pre-internet. So if you grew up wanting to do comics in a place like Canada, it felt very far away. Mm. And suddenly there was this place where there were people who had actually been down there working for actual companies and had secret knowledge, like, you know, doing your thumbnails small and then blowing them up with a photocopier and tracing them onto your board rather than figuring it all out on the fly and making a huge mess erasing a million times. That was like a nugget of secret knowledge that there was no Google. There was no way to get that. You either knew somebody in comics or you never heard that trick. And you couldn't and you get spent... it from art school or anything like that. Oh yeah. That's part yeah. of the reason why I dropped out. Yeah. There was no, I mean, this is, this is, this precedes the second wave of like graphic novels as art. Yeah. There was no support or appreciation for wanting to do comics in, well, it's a little bit in my high school, but not so much. And definitely not in art college at the time, you know, lowbrow art as a thing hadn't emerged, you know, people like James Jean hadn't straddled the line. It was just, you know, that's garbage. 
make some art. And it was, it was, it was still like, I went to school in the mid nineties. So there was still that remnants of that 1970s, 1960s way of thinking where most of the instructors were old hippies. And it was a lot of like, just feel it, man. Ah, don't worry about anatomy. You know, you don't, you don't want to learn the rules, man. Rules are just going to fence you in. Just do your thing, man. There was a lot of like, just feel it without any real practical instruction, which I also found really frustrating because I wanted to get better Um. and I wanted to learn, you know, structure and things that's cool so what was it like working at this studio and how did you feel learning from these people like how did it work in terms of shaping you well it all of the names i listed were kids like me at the time Mm -hmm. like none of us had done anything yeah so it sounds like an all-star roster of canadian comic book talent but at the time we were all just frustrating kids with day jobs um the the only guy who had ever done any real work was logan and he had he had a certain amount of of experience to share, but um, it was really just most of us banging around on our own for the most part, and so, just figuring things out through trial and error. So like a lot of experimentation and stuff. Like yeah, that. and but uh, as Francis put it really well, like we had our dessert first every day. We would just show up and draw covers and pinups and character designs all day long because we weren't actually working for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a place to practice. practice. It was good. It was good. It was very good in that it made it real. It made doing comics, being with comics people, that feel really real. And that's what I took with me and when I left. Possible. Like yeah. It felt possible. I went to my first con with those guys. Like, I don't know if I'd been on my own, like in the suburbs, stuck in my bedroom, if I ever would have crossed that threshold. What was your first con? Uh, San Diego was my first con. Wow. But the, but I only went not, there once or twice. Yeah, and not the same as it is now. I yeah, I wasn't really ready to show my work. I kind of just went to go. So that was like, I got it all out of my system. It was the one, one, one-time fan journey where I just went as a fan. And I was like, oh my God, Art Adams is right there. Matt Wagner's right there. Um, and that was, that trip was pure fan. And the next time we went to Chicago, and there I went to try and get work. And from that point on, like that, that one and only fan experience in San Diego, that was it. It got out of my system in one trip and I started going to Chicago every year because it was a lot closer. And uh, I started treating that as, as a work trip as like trying to get, get hired. So get did it work? Feedback. Like yeah, how many times did it did. It, take? It, it worked and not in the way I expected. I okay. got, I got some interest from Caliber and they hired me to do, um, this King Arthur comic. They were doing these King Arthur comics. They were sort of one-offs, like an anthology about King Arthur. So I did one of those, and uh, it took me a million years. Not much has changed. The next year I went back, I, I actually, there I got a job that kind of defined my career path for the next five, almost ten years, um, which is on a whim I talked to the Wizards of the Coast people who published Dungeons and Dragons. Wow. And one of the, I obviously had just done some King Arthur stuff, right? So I had yeah. I had the right kind of stuff in my portfolio. And, and just preceding that King Arthur book, I'd done a pinup of Mordred. Uh-huh. They, they were doing like a pinup gallery of, of Arthurian characters, and I'd done a Mordred. And that was like the crown jewel of my portfolio. And the D&D guys were really complimentary about that. And a few months later, I got a call and uh, I started doing spot illustrations for first. It was, uh, I guess, Polyhedron, then Dungeon Magazine, then Dragon Magazine, and then eventually in Dungeons and Dragons books. And for the next few years, like I hadn't really broken into comics. Um, I was just doing a lot of role-playing game art, did a little White Wolf, um, started doing Star Wars after a few years. I was just doing 90% of my work was doing uh, role playing game art. So and I is, was full time and, and employed by that. Like, that was enough. So, the, this is this is when? Like, around what time? Like, year wise? To. No, earlier than 2000. Oh, you know what? 2001. Okay. 
Yeah. Because I was working, I had a day job working at a computer game company for the entire year of 2001. Okay. And, uh, and there was a crazy time there. I was like doing character designs all day at the game company, come home, put in a videotape of Sopranos that my friend who had the movie network recorded for me, watch an episode, and then stay up till 4 a.m. doing D&D art. That's Sleep for four hours, go back to my day job. That's crazy. And that was like, uh, that was a few months like that, just trying to get, a, get my hooks into the freelance gig I really wanted. And um, the compute, the video game job kind of fell away. They, the company had its own issues and I was able to kind of leap fully into, uh, freelance. And that was, um, that was a good time because, you know, pre Bush, the U S dollar was, well, I guess it was early Bush. Uh, the U S dollar was really strong. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was making, making a decent money. rate, but yeah. then I got one and a half times that in exchange. So I had a cheap apartment. I was living alone. It was like, it was a kind of a perfect storm to start a freelance career. Nice. Nice. Cool. Yeah, I'm a I'm a freelancer too, and that's that's pretty awesome when you can you can use the dollar to your to your advantage to your advantage. Yeah, it's finally starting to be like that again after yeah, a yeah, really I, long I'm, time. I'm experiencing that right now, actually. So then, how did you finally get into comics off of uh, the role playing games that you were working on? I just kept trying. I kept going back to conventions mainly that chicago show i guess it was the next year that i went down there and i met carl kershaw and brendan fletcher uh and those two guys i had i'd been a fan of their website and they'd been posting art from this book miki they'd been working on which is amazing it never came out but i went right up to them and i went you guys are awesome and uh and they're canadian too yeah so we all kind of became buds they were sort of working in toronto at the time and we started sharing the website the uh delightfully named whorehouse.com <laughs> Uh, which which is sounds terrible said out loud, but it's spelled H O R H A U S, um, which is you know a little less uh, punch you in the face when you read it. Yeah, uh, and these guys had had this thing going for another year, and they invited me to join it. We kind of had a virtual studio, uh, and working with them kind of opened up a lot. Again, like working with Carl. Carl had been doing stuff for Marvel through the late '90s. Like he had a lot of books under his belt, and. It was a different perspective from the one I'd gotten from Logan, who had worked for Image. Yeah. Um, you know, Carl was a much more soft-spoken, easygoing dude, and he had had a different experience and different skills to share. His his influences were a lot more like mine. He was kind of into anime and Capcom and and Travis Charest and stuff like that. And so it made it okay to sort of be to sort of be into that and influenced by that. I'm yeah, like, we definitely had uh, had like like influences and loves in common. Carl is a monumentally talented guy. He's one of those wonder that just does it and makes it look so easy but running with him i learned a bunch of new stuff and again it made he made it feel possible in a in a totally different way where um you know he he had a career and so he very generously uh you know included me in talking to people he knew and out of that i i got my first fill-in for dc was 10 pages in legion it was uh filling in for olivier coipel it was his early work nice and then, you know, then I was sort of in the system, as it were. And I think I got offered eye candy after that. I don't know that there was anything else in between, which was an Abnett and Lanning uh, creator-owned project that they pitched to DC about this sort of sci-fi Chun-Li type character who comes out of a video game and, and kind of helps out her autistic little brother, or at least the character takes the form of the older sister who went missing of this autistic kid. 
I designed all the characters and drew that and colored it too. I was trying to, I was trying to be Josh Middleton, but I'm not, uh, but I, he was, I was really inspired by what he was doing on NYX, just doing the whole thing. Yeah. It was a six issue miniseries. I'm still pretty proud of it, particularly the character designs. And then you worked on NYX too, didn't you? That was later. That was totally, yeah, yeah. That was a weird coincidence later. That was in like 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. where, yeah, they, they were launching a second volume and, and I got to do that. But I didn't color it. I was smart enough to not, Good, not, not do that this time. On. So how did you, like with your early work, I mean, it sounds like, and everyone who I've talked to about this who's working for Marvel DC has basically said it's sort of about your, you know, about who you know. And then once you're in the system... And they like you and you can get stuff in sort of on time and you're consistent. They just go back to you every, every so often. Yeah. Uh, generally. Yeah. I mean, once, once pe- people start becoming aware of you, once you're doing stuff, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing covers, you'll be in previews every month. Everyone in the industry looks at that. If you do something cool, they may not immediately remember you, but it'll stand out in their minds. And, you know, there's comics is kind of a small pond. Everyone's sort of aware of everyone else. Um, so it's that. My experience with DC was I had to sort of go back to go with each project. I'd do a project and then I'd have to meet another editor or send someone else work or stumble in another way. Whereas it took a lot longer for me to get my first Marvel work. I'd been working for four or five years before they finally like cracked and gave me the time of day. Mm-hmm. But once I was in, I was in. And it's, I find it much easier uh, with Marvel to just email somebody and get something yeah. still. Yeah. Uh, whereas DC, I felt like every, every, they had goldfish brains, like every year I was new again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's a, that's my experience. It's I've like, it's actually like the comic editor Alzheimer's. Well, sort of, I, it's but like, it's a company. Sure, but it's company sure, wide, yeah, though, yeah, right? Because yeah, like, yeah. of course, editors change, and not yeah, everyone's going to know you. Yeah, but even true. even the there was no like company memory. Yeah. But interestingly, I've spoken to to friends of mine who are pros who have the exact opposite experience. So oh, okay. there really is no rhyme or reason to it. It's just you know whatever your experience is, yeah. which is part of why I get people in here talking about it because. It's so fascinating to hear everybody's individual experience. Mm -hmm. In terms of, like, how did you sort of handle the work as it was coming in? Like, what's your process for, like, doing your art? And how did it evolve as you got more experienced? Um, Or has it always been the same? No, no, no. Um, I I don't know how technical the answer will be, or how technical an answer will be interesting for your listeners. But... I started uh, using a lot of blue pencil in my early drawing life. Um, in my first gigs, I think I was I was penciling with a blue pencil and then sort of inking with graphite and not inking at all. And uh, my earliest role-playing game work, I did uh, watercolor, sort of colored ink wash kind of stuff. But I switched to digital as soon as they would let me and started using Photoshop and Painter to color which I still use Photoshop to this day. That's become, it's a huge part of how I work. Um, eventually, after a few years, once I joined Raid, I kind of grew the hell up and started inking like a grown-up and uh, tossed out the blue pencil because all that waxy buildup is not good for anything, certainly not good for inking, um, and continued to draw on uh, on uh, Bristol. I guess I guess I touched on the fact that like the secret nugget of of, of information was doing your thumbnails small yeah. and then blowing them up and tracing them. Mm. Um, once computers came around, there was no reason to do that. You yeah. could just do your thumbnails digitally and print them out whatever size you wanted. And once uh, event once printers got good enough, I just printed my roughs straight onto the board in a very pale blue, rather than sitting there with a light box tracing like a chump. 
And uh, now I work on a Cintiq. I don't actually do any line work on paper at all. It's much more versatile to just uh, use a stylus and make the lines and color as you go. And it's a lot more integrated. Now. Sort of like an iPad sort of situation, or like sort of yeah. Cintiq yeah. is like it's like a tablet if you know what a Wacom yeah. tablet okay, is. Yeah. But it, but the screen is the tablet. So rather than drawing on the tablet and looking at the screen, you're drawing on a second screen. Oh, okay. I see. Cool. So. You're going along, you're doing your thing. What's the next significant thing to happen? Did you join Did you join Raid or were you just sort of like, I'm happy doing what I'm doing and, and then it just sort of came along eventually? Yeah, I guess, I guess after role-playing games, uh, I was doing that for a while and then I started doing more comics work here and there, bits and pieces. And uh, I guess the next big thing was getting my first cover gig. So, which was an action comics cover with, with live wire on it. Um, that was just, uh, you know, a DC editor was here in Toronto and I'd done, I'd done a bit, bits and pieces. I'd done some covers for Harris comics, rest in peace and, uh, some other stuff. I don't know, like a lot of devils do covers. I did a long run of devils do covers. Um, and a DC editor just went, we should get you doing covers. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you should. And, uh, that's when I did, uh, action comics. I did an outsider's cover and I started my run on Ion. And that was the first like cover run that I had. And I was like, I like this. I think I like this more than, than comics. I've always sort of my background in illustration, long, long history of role playing game art. I always kind of knew that I'd be better suited, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't sure that you could just walk in and do covers if you weren't like a painter. So I kind of looked into that and I started getting cover work and that sort of for the next 10 years, that became the center of my career. Like I do, I do things like the Santana short or the Dazzler one shot or NYX. Um, <clears throat> but they were all short of shorts and miniseries and one shots. The main thing, the, the backbone of most of my day every day was drawing covers. And, and then it took a few years and I started doing them for Marvel too. It's weird because like, whenever artists are like showing their portfolio for the first time, the advice is always, like, we don't want to see covers. We want to see, like, whether you can, like, tell a story and do, like, sequential art and stuff. But then a lot of the people that I've talked to on here, like, that's sort of how they 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 ended up, like, what they ended up doing first was, was like, the sort of the cover. Covers thing. as samples or yeah. covers as their career? Uh, covers as their career. Like, they had yeah. the portfolio with everything, but then they ended up, but then they ended up doing covers and stuff. So I'm just wondering, like, what is the... What's the balance in terms of like should you have an actual story with like s like panels and whatever? It, it depends or on what like, you want to do, right? Okay. Like dress for the job you want. If okay. you want to be drawing pages, have pages. If you want to be drawing covers, have covers. If you want both, have both. Okay. I mean, you know, it's not a bad idea to have a cover or two in the mix, but yeah. if you want to draw an issue of X Men, you need to have some pages, or they're going to laugh you out of the room. Yeah, because right? some people are like. You know, like a pinup doesn't really tell me anything, like in terms of not if you're you not if you're story. applying for story yeah, pages. Yeah, yeah. If you're applying yeah. for covers, a pinup might tell you something. Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, cool. Sort of. Yeah, it yeah, all depends on what you want to do. Yeah. You know, it's like if you want to be a colorist, don't show up with pencils. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Same for thing. Sure. Cool. So, like, sort of target it instead of being like, I just want to work in comics. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Cool. So then. In terms of like doing covers and that sort of thing, and that being like the backbone of your career, I mean, that's those are those quick or like how long does it usually take? You I'm do, getting faster. It's, to do a, it's a very comfortable set of dance steps. Uh, okay, it depends. I mean, if the cover is a character's head, it's very quick. If the cover has 25 characters on it, it's not so quick. Yeah, you know, I did a run on Marvel Universe handbook covers, and those took a long ass time. 
so it's like every character. And I also pencil ink and color all my covers. Oh, Sometimes okay. I do the logo too. So generally, I mean, on average, somewhere between two and six days. Okay, cool. It all depends on what's on it. So how did you how did you fall in with the guys at Raid? Were you you were one of were you one of the founding members? I was not. Raid was founded by by four people: uh, Cameron Stewart, Ben Shannon, Kagan McLeod, and Chip Zdarsky. Uh, I had known Cameron for years. We had worked together uh, at Silver Snail. I guess that was a chapter I didn't say. I did work at Silver Snail for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, right around the time I was joining Bright Anvil Studios at Alternate Gravity. Um, so I met Cameron there. We were both uh, wanting to draw comics. And uh, he was one of the founders of Raid. And for a few years, he he was in Raid. And we just hung out as friends. And uh, I was working from home. And then I got my own studio. I had a solo studio in uh, Marivish Village for about a year or two. And uh, I was where the beguiling is right across the street from the beguiling. Oh, okay. And uh, I just realized that I needed people around. It was better to be getting out of the house, but I I needed other humans. Uh, So I joined Raid. Uh, Scott Hepburn and I joined in the same month. By then, almost all the founders had left. It was just Cameron, and there'd already been a fair bit of turnover. So Ramon, Andy, uh, I think Eric Kim was there for a bit, but I think he moved out as I was moving in. Uh, and Carl Kershaw, weirdly, had ended up there having moved back to Toronto from Montreal. And were you sort of like, hey? Or Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I was friendly with those guys from the get-go. Yeah. Mostly Cameron. I didn't know the other guys as well. But yeah. um, then a bunch of my friends joined the studio. So I was like, okay, this is a sign I need to do this. It's scary, but that's probably a sign that I should do it. So I joined the studio. Cool. That's and that awesome. was a long ass. That was almost 10 years ago. Seven, eight, nine years ago. Cool. Yeah. So what were, like, why do you, you know, since you know Cameron, like, do you know, like, why the studio was founded and, like, what they were trying to do? Just or, wanted a place to work. Yeah. And Very then, simple. And then now it sort of has this sort of reputation as, like, the the center of, like, Canadian, like, people in Toronto that do comics. That really? Know, or sort of. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think so. When you said because, reputation, I kind of held my breath because I didn't know what you were going to say because, next. Because <laughs> I've heard lots of different things about us. Because, but. because, like, it's like, okay, you go from not knowing that the people that you're reading are Canadian to knowing that they're Canadian. Mm-hmm. And then if you're really sort of in the scene and you get to know some of these people, you realize that they're sort of all working out of the same out of the same studio and they all know each other and they're doing well, they had that Transmission X thing for a bit and that kind of thing, right? True. So, so that's sort of how it sort of expands. I don't think everybody who listens to pod, this podcast knows that that's, that's the case, but I mean, there's a lot of people that come out of come out of Raid Studios right now. Maybe, yeah, I, I I don't know. Maybe um, that's nice of you to say. Um, I definitely feel that there is a thriving and vibrant comic book scene in Toronto, and it goes far beyond Raid. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on too. Um, and it's sort of always been the center, right? Like even before like Toronto whatever, or Raid. Yeah, like whatever com- Toronto, whatever. Uh, whatever there was in terms of Canadian comics. Well, let me tell you, there was there wasn't much when I was looking around and when I was in college. I mean, uh, alternate gravity was kind of a lifeline. Um, There were there were people like there was Ty Templeton, Mm -hmm. and he was ten years older than me and not in my peer group and not accessible at the time. Um, Now there's multi tiers and generations of people making comics. You know, Sheridan has a graphic novel program. There's schools for it. 
there's lots of little studios jumping up all over the place. And like, OCAD has that international reputation sort of thing for like animation and comics and that kind of thing too, right? Like really? People, people come to OCAD. That's what other OCAD people, for other, animation. Other people that I've talked to have told me. I would say Sheridan for animation. Other I don't know. People that I've talked to have told me that here, like they've said that that OCAD and like Sheridan, Sheridan sort yeah. of draw people. To, well, to it is the biggest place. city in the country, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess there's a certain amount of that. But honestly, like 20 years ago, there was nothing. <laughs> and now, legit, you're right. There is an amazing, thriving scene. There's lots of people doing lots of interesting, legit yeah. stuff. A lot of people working for Marvel in DC, in studios, out of studios. You know, there are little internet gatherings and collectives and sketch groups. And then there's Raid. And we're one of lots of things that are going on. And Mm -hmm. it's a really cool place to live. I'm really happy to be living in a place where I can walk into a bar and sit down with 20 comic book artists and talk about what we do, because I never imagined... That would be like that unless, unless to, I lived in New York. You maybe. don't have to move to New York. You know? right. It's not like a yeah. Hollywood dream sort of situation where you have to like, if you want to do this, you have to go yeah. to the place. So I guess our studio is some part of it, though. Yeah, who knows where we fall. But, uh, you know, we're just a bunch of guys who need a place to work. Cool. So what's so what's your day like in terms of like going to raid? and, and uh... Well, my career is in a massive transition right now. So uh, my day up until very recently would have been go to the studio, probably somewhere between noon and two o'clock and, uh, you know, park my ass in the chair and draw things until somewhere between midnight and 2 a.m. Okay. And listen to podcasts like yours and uh, just draw. But much more of my day is spent writing these days. So I'm not at the studio that much. I still freelance covers here and there. Uh, So I'm in there a couple of days a week, usually in the evenings. But I'm at coffee shops or at the library writing on my laptop a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's, there seems to be a sort of transition because you ended up to do sort of the spearheading of the relaunch of Captain Canuck, right? Which is what you're sort of, what you're sort of doing now. Right? Yeah, totally. That's been my main focus for a couple of years now. Yeah. Okay. So, so when did that happen? Can you talk about the genesis of, of getting involved with uh, chapter house and sure. And Canuck? Yeah. Yeah. It started a few years ago. Um, I was approached to revamp Captain Canuck really. It's, I guess, uh, Captain Canuck is an old character from the seventies. You may or may not know. He was created by Richard Comley and, uh, self-published into the eighties. And then, after he was that, on a stamp. For he was he was on a stamp in the nineties. He's a Canadian flag wearing superhero. He gets mistaken for Guardian from Alpha Flight a lot, but he does predate Guardian by four years. And uh, yeah, these guys had gotten it in their head to bring him back. Uh, Fatty Akeem, who owns local restaurant hotspot, the Lakeview Lunch, wanted to kind of option the rights and do something with it. And one of the producers worked with Francis on a project and said, "Hey, Francis, you want to do this?" My studio mate, Francis Manipal. And Francis is like, ha, you're high. I'm exclusive for DC. Like, no can do. Uh, and so he pitched it to me. He said, you like designing stuff. You want to do this? Francis and, uh, pitched it? Or yeah. The producer pitched well, it? Francis said, you should talk to my studio uh, mate, Kalman. Okay. And uh, and then they pitched it to me. And I said, hell yeah. Who Who's the producer? Just really uh, like the producer. The two producers at the time were Paul Gardner and Dean Henry. Uh, Dean's not with the project anymore. And, and Paul Paul still is. Uh, they they worked for TV Ontario and CBC or something like that. Each each of them had 
TV credits, but no comic book credits. Yeah, that's what I want to sort of catch our listeners up on. Like, Captain Canuck sort of started out as like a web series TV thing first. They came, they said, we have the rights to Captain Canuck. We want to revamp it from the ground up. They had a bunch of ideas already about how to sort of, uh, how to angle it. But they didn't really know what they wanted. They were... And they got those from Richard, right? Yep, yep. They, they Richard. Richard's involved. He yeah. he oversees everything and gets gets to look at it. And, mm. and it was, the deal was with him because Richard still owns Captain Canuck. He never sold the rights. Yeah. And, uh... <clears throat> So uh, they were like, we want to do something. We want to do animation. We want to do webisodes. We want to do something. Maybe comics, too. We want to do something. I was like, cool, let's do something. So uh, first I redesigned Captain Canuck. And after talking to those guys a bunch, we kind of banged around a bunch of ideas. And uh, they, they liked it. So then we continued designing all the characters. And okay, I, okay, so hold on. So redesigning Captain Canuck is a pretty big thing because he's been so, – he looks sort of the same – for the entire for mostly the entire time that he's that he's been around so i just want to get into sort of did they want to redesign him or did you or no they who? definitely did okay okay they they right out of the gate the whole the, from d- jump street it was battlestar galactica style reboot let's take this thing that's kind of dated and kind of charming but kind of hokey and treat it seriously and start again and tr- and take it seriously just completely play it straight and see what we can do with it. And I was like, okay. That's like a dream thing. Like you get yeah. to be the founding part of this of the of this sort of crazy idea that they had. Totally. Right? And they were extremely collaborative. Everybody was very open to my ideas and uh the process was really pleasurable. Cool. So what what were your ideas? Like what did you want to do? They came with it fairly. They they definitely wanted some to t- turn the spandex into some kind of armor. Uh, they wanted a more of a super soldier feel than a superhero feel. They had the Tonfa. The whole Tonfa on his back uh, definitely came preloaded. And uh, and they wanted some sort of nanotech sort of element to it. So it's like more sci-fi. And less- well, they, the, the pitch they gave me, which left me scratching my head at the time, was sort of half Bruce Tim, half Geiger's alien. <laughs> and I was like, ah... Okay, but Captain Canuck kind of looks that way now. You think so? I'm, then know, I succeeded. You sort of succeeded, and like I wouldn't have put it that way until you just told me. But I think it sort of does. I mean, it has like the technical aspects of the Geiger alien sort of thing, but it also has like the square jaw, yeah, Bruce Tim sort of sort of thing happening as well. For sure, especially that first model sheet. I definitely tried to kind of uh, tweak my drawing style to give it that sort of simple, dynamic, heroic silhouette. And yeah, there's there's a nanotech aspect, so like the hexagons are there. But it was really just about taking the elements of the Canadian flag, elements that to me were already pretty super heroic because I loved Alpha Flight as a kid. Like I learned how to draw Maple Leaf because I wanted to learn how to draw Guardian. Did it suck when they killed them? Well, I actually, my first issue of Alpha Flight was the issue after he died, <laughs> which made him more enticing to me. You know, okay. like I was, I was big into dead heroes when I was a kid. I loved the original Captain Marvel too. Again, first issue, he dies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Guardian's been back a million times since then. It's comics. Everyone comes back. No one's really dead. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it was just the design problem was how to modernize him and how to sort of take the elements of the Canadian flag, the two iconic colors, you know, red and white, and make it work. There, there were a few Captain Canuck revamps in between ours and the original, and some of them were, you know, I mean, one of them was mostly black. Like, that's not 
that's not Canada. You need the Canada. You know, it's red and white. Like, it's simple. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just incorporated different elements of different things. I tried to play with the proportions, try not to make it look too Olympic skier. But all of my favorite sort of patriotic heroes are in that. You know, there's a bit of Captain Britain in the helmet. There's Ultimate Cap in the shoulder insignia. There's and a bunch of other things, too. Like, you know, there's a bit, a bit of Ultraman in the overall color balance. Like... You know, I try to I try to incorporate a lot of different things when I design something, and and then you know I nailed down certain things like the wrist bracers and the ankle bracers, which all the characters have. There's a certain sort of shoe design, and a, that all the characters on his team now have. Like just just trying to, just to lay down the broad the strokes of the world element, yeah. so that they're all part of the same team, and you know exactly visually. the belt design yeah. with the with the stripes on the pouches, and they had the insignia logo too, the double C logo. They the producers had worked that out already, and they were really keen on it, and that. That became the belt. <clears throat> that became the belt. Yeah. A little splash of yellow just to kind of give it a little variety in the color department. Cool, cool. So what was your relationship with Captain Canuck as a fan before, you know, ha- taking on this project? Did have, Had you read it before? Did you know? I, had a, I have a memory. idea? I have a memory, a very early memory of being at a friend's house and seeing a Captain Canuck comic on his kitchen table. And he was, I guess... He was, he, this is like, I don't know, I must have been four. Like, this is before I ever bought that X-Men comic I was telling you about or Micronauts or any of that. And uh, he said, this is Captain Canuck. It's a mail order thing. Like, and I was like, shouldn't that be, Cap-? like, everyone, Captain Canuck? What's a Canuck? Shouldn't it be Captain Canada? And uh, and that image, that cover is still burned into my mind. And then growing up and becoming a comic reader, of course, I was aware of Captain Canuck. And again, you know, through through you know thinking Guardian was awesome, you learn about Guardian, you learn about Captain Canuck. He was a character that I, you know, funnily enough, like redesigned for fun a few times growing up. Uh, so it was already already yeah, in there. Because like for me, old school Captain Canuck was like a little bit embar- like a little bit embarrassing, kind of like. He's Canadian though, like very earnest and yeah, and yeah. not like very Canadian in terms of like personality and like the way that we are and like humble and and that kind of thing too. So sure. it was sort of like a lot of people feel that way. You know, we always we always sort of feel like oh, we're just you're sort of trying to do Captain America, even though they they're not really like related at all. But it it feel it felt like. Canada trying to do yeah. Captain America. Like, I think they're visually pretty out. dissimilar, but yeah. a lot of people jump on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing, there are a couple of things that set those early Captain Canuck comics, you know, on a, on a higher level than they maybe otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is George Freeman's artwork. Yeah. Um, you know, he's rich, created by Richard Comley, but after issue four, he teamed up with another artist Mm -hmm. and that guy is amazing and was well ahead of his time. He was, his work on that book is kind of like a weird amalgamation of John Byrne, Wendy Peeney and P. Craig Russell. And it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And the coloring, the coloring, the the process they use to separate the colors and print the colors is actually a, a process that Marvel adopted like five years later. So at the time when those early Captain Canuck comics were coming out, they had a larger color palette than any Marvel or DC comic at the time. So it was like brighter and more vibrant. Just more, more colors, yeah. you know, like the, the, the pro the palette at Marvel and DC was pretty limited and periodically they would make a technical leap, but it wasn't until the nineties when they brought in Photoshop yeah. 
or, or late 80s, I guess, that you could have every color before it's like you had like five yellows and five greens and it was yeah. all, you know, it was a, it was like an RGB kind of thing yeah, in, yeah. in terms of inks. There was, I can't remember what it's called. It's technical nonsense you won't care about. Yeah. But, but you know, you were limited. Like you couldn't, you couldn't choose a particular shade of yellow and get that. They'd be like, well, we have this one that's darker than you want and this one that's lighter than you want. Which one you want to go with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Captain Canuck had more yellows. You, could get closer to that because there were four yellows instead of two or whatever. What I liked about it once I opened it and got past the the hokiness of the idea was that it was a lot more like politically aware and it had more edge than than Captain America had sometimes and like it, it was, definitely had a, a political yeah. stance. Yeah, yeah, Some of it yeah. was a bit Pollyanna, like, yeah. in the future, yeah. Canada rules the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, Marvel got into some of that stuff in the later 80s, but that was 10 years after. Yeah. So yeah. sort of ahead of its time. Maybe, kinda, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In those ways. Um, so, so, you're, so you're, like, redesigning the character and everything, and it starts out as, like, a YouTube series, right? Initially, there was, you know, a certain amount of funding, and they wanted to see how far they could get with that. So the producers wrote a script, and I slowly started redesigning everybody. And they wanted Redcoat to be a female, and I wanted Quebec to be a female. So we compromised and made them both females. The original Captain Canuck had these two guys who kind of followed him around, but they were kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, like sort of indistinguishable, except one was red and one was blue. Uh, and we kind of turned them into you know, fully fleshed out characters. One's a sniper, one's kind of like a pilot field agent. And still, they weren't 100% sure what they wanted to do. They were it was sort of, we were kind of building a pitch package to see where it could go. Okay. Um, and once we did that, then the decision was made to do a five-part web series. And yeah, they wrote the episodes and uh, they, we, they did a Kickstarter campaign. It was actually Indiegogo to fund it. And, uh, you know, there was a long process. I, I, I designed all the characters for it. Um, and I, well, that was it for my involvement though. I had no, no hand in the writing other than a suggestion and some notes here and there and, uh, and some tweaks to the model sheets. Uh, yeah, the campaign was successful and, uh, they came out, I think every three months, yeah. they're all done. They've been done for a year or two. And, uh, yeah, there's a five part animated web series that anyone can watch for free at captainconnect.com. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I, I've I've watched it. Thank you. And they're going into season two, aren't they? We are. Yeah, the yeah. Night, we're writing it right now. We've done the voice record for episode one. They've announced that like Jason Priestley is going to be like Captain Canuck's brother. Yep. In it, that's a character who has appeared in the comics but hasn't appeared in the animation. Yeah. Yet. If, if you're reading the comics, he's like one of the like looming forces in in, in the comics have you read the comic in terms of like <laughs> i'm like, not sure it sounds like you've read the comic well, but i i i like because he's like it's like it's like the brother and they have they have issues because it's like are you talking like, with the original or, or the new you're, series you're one that he's, you're, that he, well you're he's, he's a point of view character in issue yeah, one yeah yeah he's a point of view character but then you find out like that they there there's something happened they went on like this, like this adventure in this place, and and something happened between them, and and ones in one location and ones in another location. It's sort of it's sort of a sibling sort of. Yeah. They don't really like each other. Okay, you, uh, have, you, have, you, have, you have read the comic. So like, so what happens is like for Captain Canuck, his brother is this sort of 
like cramping his style, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's not an easy relationship. It's It's a bit fraught. It's like this looming presence of like, oh my god, my brother, like so annoying, kind of thing. But I would say that that's more the brother's take on Kanak. Okay. Like, if you asked each of them what they thought of the other, that's probably what Michael would say about Canuck. Canuck kind of thinks the best of his brother. It's hard to say whether he's he's oblivious or he's just trying really hard to see the best in him. him, Yeah. Yeah, and then not and like kind of. I like to think about it in terms of like he knows, but he's trying to put his best foot forward, right? Because that's more. There's more tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So how did you like? How did you come up with a story? Like what? What is the story? Because we're we're this is like sort of, it's like almost like Canada's shield CIA secret operative. Like we come in when when there's no other options. To, sort of sort of team. Like that's yeah, sort of how I think that's, about it. I'm glad it it reads on the page. That's that's pretty accurate. Um, again, a lot some of the a lot of the basic concepts uh, were already in place with what the producers had done. Or were developed while we were kind of thinking about the web series. So once the webisodes were done, the next thing they wanted to do was a comic. And they like, we want you to write it. Uh, but we want you to draw it, too. So I was like, well, I really just want to write. And like, no, no, you should draw it. So I wrote and drew the first couple of issues. And in conceptualizing all of that stuff, I had a lot to work with. I mean, obviously, I had the original to cherry pick from in any way that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Even though this is a new story, it's, it's, a, it's a reboot. You can still, you know, anything that's good there will survive. And they had their own ideas. Equilibrium was a concept they had come up with. And it was what exactly equilibrium was was kind of left up to me in terms of how I interpreted it in the comic. I think my equilibrium in the comic is a little more shoestring and small than the equilibrium they're setting up in the animated universe. Uh, Um, The continuity is a hundred percent is not a hundred percent the same. If you think about like GI Joe in the comics or like the relationship between like walking dead, the show and walking dead. Yeah. Another good example. Um, Yeah. So, but yeah, Equilibrium is essentially a, a crisis intervention agency. They kind of deal with environmental hazards and things of that nature. Uh, but they're also paramilitary. And uh, yeah, this shield is a pretty good an- analogy, maybe a slightly less well-funded shield. Um, a more idealistic, uh, but more underfunded shield. Uh, so that was one of the things. Um, I kind of wanted to focus on the relationship between Canuck and Michael. Um, he is in the original series, Michael, but he's kind of a ancillary supporting character. He's not really important. Was it different? Like, did they have the same sort of tenuous relationship or did you? No, they were, they were buddies. They were buddies in the original comic. Um, again, Michael and Canuck having problems was in the original sort of producer's document. I just ran with the ball and fleshed it out and kind of turned it into an ongoing thing. And I decided to make it that their origins are tied together, that like it wasn't just Canuck who like was exposed to aliens in the Arctic. His brother was there too. And he got something as well. Um, and that's something that I'm going to be revealing more about as the series goes on. But that, that was a choice I made to give them both a little something to make them both special in some way. So what did you want to say in terms of like the broad strokes of like, is there anything big that you wanted to say about Canada, about the way that we like look at superheroes like are were there sort of larger themes that you that you wanted to play with because 
I mean, Captain Canuck is not just is not just a superhero. He's a superhero with like a national identity. Sure, and, sure. And Canada gets very concerned about their national identity and their place in the world sure. and that sort of thing. So, what kind of bigger issues did you want to introduce by, you know, sort of writing the story? What did you want to say about? There, are, there are a couple of things. Some of them I can't get into too okay. much because they're gonna for it'd be too much foreshadowing. Well, yeah. But. I didn't want to get too political because I felt like Captain Canuck's not my character. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a bigger history. And I mean, politics played a role in the original, but they were very sci-fi over the top politics. And some of those things like conspiracy theories and shadow governments are still in there. But it's not a, it's not a, it's not a soapbox for my, my views. I tried to keep it very uh, archetypal and, I guess if I had to think about it, it's sort of like I wanted it to feel like you picked up a comic from an alternate universe. In our comic book, Canada is not a world superpower. Canada is not like in the original. Um, it's our world with a few minor tweaks. But I wanted you to feel like this comic could have come from a world where Canada is a world superpower, where maybe there is a Canadian comic book industry that's as widespread as the American comic book industry is in our universe. And so... I just wanted to feel like, you know, it's normal that everything's happening in Canada. You yeah. know, it's, it's that, that shouldn't be noteworthy. It's not like not a lot of maple syrup jokes and AA, you know, it's just like, yeah, this is happening in Calgary and that's happening. And that's sort of how I felt when I was reading early issues of Alpha yeah. Flight. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to give it that feel. And so just not, not be embarrassed about my Canadianness. Mm -hmm. but it's not like he's like destroying a Captain America analog on page two yeah, either. Right. Yeah. It, that's, that's not the Canadian way. No, not um, exactly. So there's a certain element of humility and that kind of a, a simple, honest, heroic, aspirational thing to Captain Canuck, um, which feels, I guess, a bit like superheroes used to be in the States, like pre-90s, pre-dark and gritty 90s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's been a, f a fair bit of course correction now in that there's room for dark and gritty characters and aspirational characters. Yeah. You can have some a movie like Captain America, which is about all you know a very wholesome hero that still works mm -hmm. um and then you have other movies like superman that absolutely rejects all of that and tries to you know take it in a it's different direction you have you have in the cinematic universes that we're dealing with you have one company that's totally going the dark and gritty and one company that's like let's put the fun in and that, and that sort of thing it's so, weird because historically like if you look at the history you would almost invert those expectations yeah, yeah. right mm -hmm. um it's almost like each company is trying to course correct from their history and be like no we can do this too yeah. um so that simple aspirational heroism is maybe feels like a bit of a throwback but i feel like that's almost i see that as as canadian an essentially Canadian sort of way of being, you know, Canada has a, has a long uh, history as being peacekeepers, people that intervene and act as shields rather than as swords. Like Captain America having a shield is really weird to me. Captain America should have a gun or a sword. Like that's America. Well, and his Captain shield, Canuck should have a shield. His shield is used as a weapon. Sure. Immediately. So it's, it's, it's yeah. like the Americanization of what a shield yeah. is supposed to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that entirely answers your questions, but those are, those are bits of it. Yeah. That's, that's sort of what I wanted to get at. I don't, I don't really care to what level. Now that you're fully in it, like how do you, I mean, you, you did the art for like the first 
issue two i did i did the first two yeah Yeah, first two issues and then now you're just doing the writing so how did you like balance i mean it's a big responsibility to to have all this stuff going on while writing and drawing and designing and still doing other freelance was just killing me yeah and once we decided to go ahead with a second season and i was writing that too it was just too much so i'm still doing covers but I stepped back from the drawing, mm-hmm. and uh, we got Leonard Kirk on board as artist, who is a massive get. Uh, he's a national treasure. Yeah. He's drawn. He's 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 signed on for the second arc as well, so he's going to continue with us. But uh, yeah, he's a hardcore Captain Canuck fan. His first published work was a Captain Canuck short, and uh, and he's been very generous with his time and energy, like juggling us alongside his Marvel work mm-hmm. and uh, and doing a kick-ass job. You know, a small publisher like Chapter House has no right to have a guy of his stature on our book. So we're super lucky to have him, and he is kicking ass. And if I – I mean, I wish I could go back and have him draw the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like Chapter House, for as small as they are and as crazy as this idea probably sounded when Fatty first came up with it, they're very ambitious, and they want to – grow this whole uh canadian comics thing they want to be huge sure yeah definitely what do you think of that what do you think of the these plans to like let's bring back Northgard and let's have you know let's everything that's ever been published that's sort of canadian you know there's a chance to get it back again and we'll republish it and and that sort of a thing i like it i like the I like the energy. Well, what's not to like? It's, well, you know. it's incredibly exciting. There's, yeah. Despite what I said about Toronto being a comics hub, it's been a long time since there's been a publisher in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I mean, Udon, uh, I guess, is in Toronto, but they have a they don't consistently do comics. They've gone through long stretches where they're just putting out art books. And even when they have, they put out one or two series. Uh, they're kind of unusual. They do a whole bunch of things. Um and then before that, really speakeasy in the mid-2000s lasted for a very short time. And then before that, you have to go back to Vortex Comics, which I talked about earlier, which yeah. published Mr. X and a bunch of other things in the, in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And part, part of that is, is that it's, you know, there's not a lot of Canadians to buy the things you're making. But why can't a publisher in Canada sell to the whole continent? Um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting time. There's been a, a weird... Not weird, but like an, a renewed interest in Canadiana in comics in the last few years. Um, you know, the beginnings of it sort of predate this Captain Canuck project um, with things like True Patriot and reprinting the Canadian whites like Nelvana and Brock Windsor and Johnny Canuck, now Mr. Monster. Um, people seem to be interested in comics from here. And uh, some of them are people that are not from here, which is good. You know, what I always say about people who ask me, like, is Captain Canuck read by Americans or or is it of any interest anywhere else? I mean, what I've observed through doing this and in general is that Canada is a bit of a hard sell in the States and Canada, but the rest of the world is on board. Like, Canada is cool everywhere, but the States in here. Uh, I was going to ask you, you're now part of canadian media and canadian media sort of has its problems in the sense that it's always compared to american media and and you know there are shows like like does do people watch the cbc and is anything like there's always that question of like of like is anything good on the cbc that isn't news and and you know really cool like radio arts programs that sort of thing whenever you watch canadian shows 
there's a certain audience that's like, yeah, but it seems a little bit like watered down and not quite what it's what it's trying to be. Like it's not the American thing that we're kind of used to. It's something it's something on its own. And there are people that say, you know, Canadian media is like it's like boring. It's it's boring. It doesn't have Well, you the read same the comics. Do you think they feel like watered down American comics? I don't I don't think they do because I've read it, but I but I always struggle like if I'm going to make something from here myself and, you know, be, do something creative out of Canada, I'm always going to get that sort of yeah, but but the it, it you know you you always get sort of get that it but it's from Canada like it can't be as good so from like, who from well I guess you get that from Canadians too from I Canadians mean too, I grew up feeling like, that way this too this sort of self hating Canada thing this sort of yeah. like publicly funded like we need the CRTC in order to in order to do anything we have like well like, I don't I don't know that anybody who's like, watching TV is aware of the CRTC yeah, yeah, really but yeah. I mean there are yeah. inherent problems in with things like the CRTC and yeah. telefilm like, we're and not going to compete those are more, we're just going to yeah we're just going to absorb as a comic book that's a different I mean that's, that doesn't apply to thing. us at all but I mean in terms of the way that you're thinking about Canada's reputation as like a media entity while you're producing Canadian yeah. media does it ever enter your mind you I try to sort of self-doubt about that kind I of I try not thing? to worry about it okay. I like you I grew up being very aware of things that were Canadian and things that weren't and yeah. I had this reflexive sort of desire to like put down anything Canadian yeah. and, and and show it for the sham that it was <laughs> and uh that's not good and you know to be fair like Things have come a long way since then. Okay. There's a lot of good Canadian stuff now. Yeah. Um, Canadian music since the early 2000s has been just destroying on a global on a global scale. I mean, mm-hmm. there's certainly good Canadian music before that date, but something happened in the early 2000s where there's just wave after wave of interesting, relevant, cutting edge music from Toronto. Not usually, if anything good was in from Canada, it was from Montreal or something like that. Yeah, uh, lots of Toronto bands like there's, and it's still continuing. Like mm-hmm. it's not a stigma anymore to be a Canadian band. At one time, that meant you sounded like Blue Rodeo yeah. and that was it or maybe maybe you were montreal ska and those were the two (laughs) options um and so that shifted then and then you get things like scott pilgrim which unapologetically embraces the fact that it's set in toronto yeah and i wanted to attack it but i loved it yeah and i think i think that was a huge blow for the world to start accepting toronto as a valid setting for things that are good Mm. Um, and there have been more of them since. I think Orphan the black things like another know. excellent example. Yeah. And I feel like the only way to push that forward and to change that is to not worry about it and just try and make something good. Just keep, keep and maybe you'll get some sneers and snark. Uh, but then maybe the next thing that does that or the next thing you do that does that gets fewer and fewer until nobody remembers that 30 years ago, people used to laugh at Canadian stuff. How could they? It's all so good now. Yeah. So what is the reaction that you're getting in light, in light of... Well, it's funny you should say that because that. it's almost exactly what you described. I've, okay. I've heard this more times than I can count. Okay. I saw that there was a new Captain Canuck comic. I nudged my friend and picked it up thinking this would be good for a laugh. And then I read it and it wasn't what I expected at all. Yeah. You guys are actually making something good. And yeah. like there's been versions of that like from here to the moon. Everybody, everybody thinks it's going to be a joke. 
And then everybody realizes we're taking it seriously. And then everybody realizes, hey, it's actually pretty good. It's not going to be to everyone's taste like anything. But we sincerely care about it. No one's making beaver jokes. It's, well, there is a beaver joke in it. But that joke is kind of like a joke on beaver jokes. Um, Yeah, we're playing it straight. We're taking it seriously. And we're not worrying about feeling self-conscious about it being in Canada. Like I said, it's from an alternate universe where everybody knows Canadian stuff is good. And it's not weird that superheroes are in in the high Arctic. Yeah, I, I but I have to ask the question. And I, and I also yeah. think it helps that you're getting like alternate covers from known Canadian artists. And well, like, well let me talk wider... about that for a second, okay. actually, because yeah. that's part of the mandate of this project. Okay. And uh, this was decided early on. And I was very on board with it, that everybody who works on this book at any level has to be Canadian. And so all the writers, artists and editors, and part of the, the nod to the history of the character is that in addition to the story that I write, which is the new revamped Canuck we've been talking about, there are classic Captain Canuck backup stories, which are new adventures featuring the original character. And we've been getting a kind of a who's who of Canadian talent to draw them. And we've been getting alternate covers by some heavy hitters. And that is very specifically done to kind of show the world that we have a lot of talent in this country. There's a lot of stealthy Canadians working in comics and other like media around the world. David Finch is Canadian. Like you, exactly. you kind of want that reaction yeah. from people. And we get that with almost every one. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of to give give the whole book some star power. We got some big fish. We got Fiona Staples to do one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know for a fact she's actively turning down cover assignments now. So we got in just under the wire. Super gratified to have her cover on our book. Um, yeah, Dave Finch, um, Nick Bradshaw, Carl Kershaw, my old pal Cameron Stewart did our issue one alternate. Um, it's been, it's been great. It's been great getting to work with people that are some of whom are my friends and some of whom are my heroes. And, uh, and yeah, so every colorist, every letterer, every editor and backup story, it's all Canadian. It's all about making this a homegrown product from top to bottom. It's, it's, it's a dream job. Like, it's crazy that somebody would approach you and be like, do you want to redo like Captain Connect for us? Yeah. I had no idea it would keep me busy for years and enable me to finally take a step into writing, which is something I've been trying to do for a few, a few years now. Why did you want to do that? You just wanted to tell your own stories. I always wanted to, it's, it's getting into comics initially was so that I could do both things, but it was easier for me to draw Mm -hmm. and getting, getting people to look at my art was easier and getting reactions. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. was easier. Mm -hmm. And so I'm an inherently lazy human. And so I just kept pushing that forward. Hey, I'm getting traction with this more art, more art, more art. Mm -hmm. I'm art guy. This is who I am. But it was all born of a desire to write and draw. Mm-hmm. And I spent almost 12 years doing nothing but drawing. It just felt like I wanted to take more control and be at the center of it. Like as an artist on a comic, you're always number two. Mm-hmm. You're always the interpreter. Yeah. Um, then you can add a lot that's yours. Sure, you're bringing stuff to the table, but I want it to be number one. I want it to be the starter of things. Um, and it's been immensely gratifying. It's it's hard in a completely different way and, uh, and, and in a way that I think agrees with my personality better. I'm finding it tremendously rewarding. Nice, nice. And it's happening at a time when you need it to happen because you're you're starting a family, right? Like you, your like personal life and that sort of thing is sort of is sort of happening as well, right? I moved in with my girlfriend, who I love very much, but I don't know. Starting a family, maybe in a year or two. Yeah. No, no concrete, solid plans as yet, but uh, I guess it's being talked about. But yeah, I yeah. guess I'm living more of an adulty life now. 
than I did yeah. two years ago or three years ago. There's a garden. Uh, you know, that's a grown-up thing to have, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Still no car. We're working on that one. Okay, cool, cool. But who needs a car when you have eggplants? All right, man. So so what's next for you? Are you just going to keep doing Captain Canuck? What can people expect from... Uh... I am going to keep doing Captain Canuck. I have about a four-arc plan Okay. that uh, everybody uh, who's in a position to say yay or nay loved. Um, so far, we've been greenlit to, through at least the second arc. Where, you know, obviously as a small publisher, you have to kind of take these things step by step, but it's looking good. Readership is up with each issue, which, as you know, is very rare in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, Internationally so, or just well, here? Well, there's just period. Here. There's only just one. General, yeah. I don't think Diamond separates for yeah, Canadian yeah, yeah. sales. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's just through Diamond Orders. Okay. That doesn't include things like comicsology, but yeah, yeah. sure, internationally, okay. yeah. Um, so the future looks bright there. Um, I'm committed to that story 100%. And that's uh, the main thing I'm writing the second season of the animated series right now. Um, so I'm doing that. I continue to do covers for Canuck and covers for Marvel. Um, I don't know. Once I can get a bit ahead of the schedule, I have two, uh, creator owned projects. One has an artist attached. One needs one. One's, uh, that uh, are the next two things I want to push forward now that I've sort of unhooked myself from the expectation that I also have to draw everything that I write. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel tremendously liberated. And uh, a lot of these projects that I've had on simmering on the back burner for years, some of them decades, feel far more attainable. Working uh, on this book, um, in addition to writing it, um, I do a lot of behind the scenes management and art direction. And it's given me a good solid grounding in how to make a comic you know, uh, completely. So, um, yeah, in 2016, in 2016, I want to take that and, uh, and launch a couple of my own projects. Cool. That's awesome. I, I, I will read them. I'm reading Captain Canuck. Thanks man. I will, I will continue on the journey with, uh, with Kalaman. So, um, where can people find you? Uh, I'm online at IamCalman.com. That's my Tumblr blog. I also have a portfolio up at IamCalman.CarbonMade.com. My name, Calman, which is in both of those, is K-A-L-M-A-N. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, as EvilCalman and uh, also on Instagram as EvilCalman. So find me at any or all of those places. All right. Thanks, Calman. I hope I wasn't too much of a of an instigator do you do you you feel good about this conversation are you all all good interviewing is instigation (laughs) at its heart awesome cool all right uh guys until next episode of speech bubble catch you later ciao bye Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.